verses 35 through chapter 5, verse 43. Those of you that can do a lot of math know that that's not all going to be read at once, okay? We're going to read it section by section as we go through it. It's on page 839 and 840 in your pew Bible. Encouraged to have that and follow along with us. We live in an age that um, Pastor Pat and I got a talk this week, and he said we live in an age of fear-based thinking. And uh, I was talking about how this passage, I said I need an illustration about fear versus faith. That is the theme throughout this whole passage. And he goes, well, that's how every politician gets you to vote. They motivate you by fear. And I said, well, tell me a little bit more. And he goes, well, the right says, you know what? You should vote for us because immigrants are going to take your job. One that I feel more keen to listening to is you need to buy that AR now, okay, because, you know, they're going to outlaw these kinds of guns. You need, to, you need to stock up now. Buy ammo now, right? And so it is that fear. But the left says the same thing. They're going to take away your health care. I remember a dear saint in our church coming to me after uh, an election of the prior administration saying, everyone in our housing complex is so afraid of losing their health care, they are voting for their money as opposed to their morals or to their convictions. I appreciated that. A culture of fear on both sides leads to paranoia mistrusting of everything. We mistrust church. We mistrust the government. We mistrust those immigrants, our neighbors, those conservatives, those liberals. And the beat goes on. We are afraid of authority, or we at least are skeptical about those in authority. We are afraid of power. We mistrust the manufacturers of cars, the drug manufacturers, doctors, lawyers, and pastors. We have good reason to oftentimes mistrust them. And you know what? People are no less skeptical about Jesus. In these four stories, in Mark 4 and 5, Christ demonstrates untamable, unmanageable, remarkable power over four things. This is not the outline. It could be. It's simple. But he has power over nature, calms the sea. He has power over the spiritual world, and he casts out demons. He has power over health, and he heals a woman who has an issue of blood. And he has power over death, and he causes a dead girl to come back to life. But what is crazy in this passage, for the first time I saw it this week, people are more afraid after he heals them than before. Did you catch that? They are more afraid of Jesus afterwards. So they don't welcome him with faith. Oftentimes they welcome him with fear. And so the question that we've been trying to ask throughout this whole series is, who is Jesus to you? We typically have to think of Jesus as a Barney-like, Mr. Rogers-like, Santa Claus-like character. He's comforting. He's calming. He's there to bring relief in your life. He's reassuring. He's not, he's not threatening. But did you know the single most often reaction to Christ is fear. He's calming, he's reassuring, he's good. But more often than not, people respond to Christ and his power with fear. So let's get into this story and see who is Jesus, why he came, and what does that mean for us. First thing we're going to see here, this is your first outline point, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. We're going to read it, 
and we're going to see four things about faith. The first one here is that faith asks Jesus. Faith asks Jesus. 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled, after the calm, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're afraid before Christ calms the storm. Why? Obvious answer. There's a great storm. There is water filling the boat. And Jesus is asleep on a cushion. They do not interpret his snooze as his confident trust in God. Oh, wow, look at our Savior. He is trusting in the Father so well. Even his cushion is getting soaked. And he's still asleep. No, they see that he is asleep, and they say this is not a sign of his trust. This is a sign of his indifference. If you loved us, you wouldn't let us go through this storm. Life is filled with hazards, isn't it, church? Not just from the sea. And so this picture goes to our hearts because everyone who has ever tried to live a life of faith has often felt that when everything is going wrong and the boat is sinking, God seems to be asleep. Where is he? Surely he cares about us, but Christ transforms this great storm into a great calm. And he asks them this question in verse 40. Verse 40 says to them, why are you so afraid? Feels like one of those parent questions, like, do you really want me to discipline you? Do you want an answer? <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. The disciples are like, ah, because we're going to drown? I mean, duh, okay. But his second question really gets to the heart of it. Have you still no faith? Or where is your faith? As if you have misplaced it. And the point here is that he is asking, hey, guess what? Your premise is all wrong. You should know better. You're saying, don't you care? Don't, don't you love us? You should do something. And the premise is all wrong because Christ says, I do allow those that I love to go through storms. I do allow those that I love to go through storms. I can deliver you from the storm, but I can also deliver you through the storm, right? And they're saying, and Christ has asked them, where is your faith? You, you've misplaced it. It's supposed to be in me. Then we come to the part in verse 41, which was new to me this week. And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Their fear doesn't disappear even after the waves calm down. That just stands out in every single one of these stories. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why? 
Because Jesus' power and his plan is just as unmanageable as the storm. Think about the storm they're going through. It is untamable. It is violent. It is inconsiderate of who you are. We as New Englanders know that nature does not love us. We wonder why we live here sometimes. Okay, we see our relatives go to Florida halfway through the year because why? They don't want to have to put on pants, okay, and they don't want to have to pay for heat, and they know that winter is against them. Compared that kind of power when you see a hurricane, we have people going down to help. You see that kind of power, that kind of destruction, people leave in awe. But often in these stories here, people see Christ's power and they also just leave with what kind of power is this? Because his power is unmanageable. His power is untamable. Christ isn't under your control. And when you see his power and you realize that he does things according to his plan and in ways that don't make sense to you, including being asleep on a boat when you're sinking, you go, wow, what kind of power is this? Now, the difference between Christ and a hurricane is that Christ loves you. Nature doesn't love you. Nature is part of the curse of this world. It can even be against us. But Christ, he has the same power, even greater power, but yet he is for you. And he's telling his disciples, if you understood who I really was and why I came, you would have faith in me. Elizabeth Elliot said it like this, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Is this kind of God over nature safe? Of course he's not safe. Who said anything about being safe? But he's good. He's the king. Those of you that know C.S. Lewis of Narnia, who is this Aslan? Is he safe? No, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. That's our Savior. So we see faith asks. Just enough just to ask. Don't you care that we perish? Our second point this morning, faith runs to Jesus. This is a crisis over the spiritual world. We've seen that Christ is Lord over nature. Now he's Lord over the spiritual and as we read through the story, you're going to see that Christ is supreme over the demons. He has superiority. The demons are inferior. Christ speaks. They ask permission to speak. They call him Lord of the Most High, and they fall down before him. It is Christ alone. Mark doesn't tell us that the disciples are here in this passage. And it is Christ alone against a legion of demons. And he alone gets the victory. There's a lot of contrast here. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he, he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed on the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Isn't it interesting? The only person that Christ does not grant their request is the man that wants to go and spend time with Jesus. The demons, they get what they want. They get to go to the pigs. The crowds get what they want. Leave. Demon-possessed man, let me come and be with you. And he goes, no, go and share. Go and share. We see this sneak peek of what the end of the world is going to be like. End of the world, what is right now is not what will be. Christ is going to set everything right. And we have this man who was demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, back a part of community, in his right mind. Demons are cast into the abyss, and that is what will eventually be. We will be in perfect community. We will be in perfect, sane right mind, and Satan and his legion will be cast into the abyss. But the most striking response to me again is the crowd. They see it. They fear and they say, please leave us alone. Look at verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They weren't frightened by the pigs running over the edge of a cliff. They were frightened by a prior demon-possessed man clothed, sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. And it just begs the question, what's so scary about sitting at Jesus' feet? Well, they knew the reality of his power, but they didn't know the reason of his coming. That really is what separates people. When you see Christ's power and you're not sure why he's using it, he is something or someone to be afraid of. If he has this power to calm the sea, if he has this power to cast out demons, is he good? And it's safer to say, you know what, you should go back to the other side of the lake. It's safer for you to go over there. They didn't know the reality of his coming, where true faith in Jesus runs to him because they see the trustworthiness of his character. Fear says, please be gone. I hope that this story here shows you what God can and will do for you. Not just that he has the power, but that he's willing. Pat this week told me, all false gods can't and won't but the true God can and will. Right? Isn't that just awesome? God, he, he, is, he, is, he wants to help you. That, that's his disposition. He is willing. He's willing to help this man and to put him back in his right mind. 
He has the power and the inclination to help. And so faith runs to Jesus. Our third point is faith touches Jesus. Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34, we have a woman who has an issue of blood. Now compared to the demoniac, this seems a lot more normal, okay? But if you're here and you've been suffering for a long time, this story might seem too good to be true, right? I just want to be sensitive to that. So let's hear what Mark has to say in 25 through 34. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And they looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Mark records that she's been sick for 12 years. She has been to every doctor, taken every drug, risked her life on every treatment that is still in testing. But it gets worse. The disease doesn't just have physical consequences. It also has social and religious consequences. In Leviticus 15.31, God's word says this, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is a woman who for 12 years couldn't go to church. Right? This is someone who couldn't download her favorite pastor on her iPod. Okay, so she's without a religious connection. She's separate from her people. She risked it all because she heard about Christ and she goes into the crowd making everybody else unclean. And so her disease, though, kept her separate from people, separate from God. And notice also in uh, verse 26 that she has spent all that she had, who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Her disease consumed her body and also her purse. What good is it to have all this money in your bank account if you're not alive to use it? Money becomes, yeah, of course, I'll spend it. Why not? I want to stay alive. And you can see how hope begins to wane. If you've here and you've been sick just for like a couple hours, you think, you know what, I'll be better in a couple hours. And then hours turns to days, and then days to weeks. Weeks to months, months to years. 365 times 12. Someone said she has less hope than blood. That's how low she is. And what we're going to see for our application this morning is that if you're going to have faith in Jesus, you have to be desperate. Every single one of these people are desperate. There's a great storm. 
There is a great legion of demons, not just one. And here's this woman who's been sick a long time. The main reason people don't find Jesus in faith is not because they have too little faith. It's because they have too much pride. Right? That's what we're wrestling against in New England. It's not that you have too little faith. That's not why you're not trusting Christ. It's that you have too much pride in yourself. But this story is comforting because it says faith isn't something you have to conjure up. Faith is just saying I'm helpless. Faith is saying I'm weak. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, or you haven't gotten yourself your heart warmed by His fire lately, have you considered the main reason you don't feel connected to Christ? It's because you have too much pride and you haven't admitted that you need Him. Just admit that you need Him. You need to have a need. That's the only requirement for faith in Christ. And so she comes up and she touches his garment, the edge of his garment, in the midst of a crowd. What does that say about her faith? And then she runs, touch and go, hide and seek. What does that say about her faith? That it's weak, that it's small, that it's failing. But even when it is weak and small and failing, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it can move mountains. What's the encouragement for you this morning? Even if your faith is weak and small and failing, if it's put in the right person, it can move mountains. It is not the subjective element of her faith that saves her. It is the objective element of her faith. It is the Jesus part that matters. It is not how strong your faith is. It is where your faith is placed in. Is it placed in yourself or is it placed in a powerful person, Christ, who with the touch of his garment says, who touched me? Friends, there was other people that were touching him in that crowd and they weren't healed. You can be bustling up against Jesus in church but not have the faith to touch him. Does your faith touch him? It's not the strength of your faith. That saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's the Jesus part. Our final story is about Jairus and his young daughter. And we're going to learn that faith waits for Jesus. Faith touches Jesus. Also, faith waits for Jesus. In a world where we wait impatiently for a microwave to count down, this is the toughest one. All the other stories are immediate. And don't you like that? Master, the sea! Peace be still. Pat and I debated this week. Did he just roll over and like open one eye and be like, peace be still? And they're like, he did that with one eye open? Or did he actually stand up and do the whole peace be still thing? I mean, we don't know. But did he have to even get up off the cushion? No. Immediate. Demon possessed. Immediately cast out. Issue of blood. Immediately dried up. This story... Well, there's a delay. But true faith waits in Jesus. Look at the delay in verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Good news, verse 24. And Christ, he, went with him. 
Here's a man who comes running, falling at Jesus' feet, begging him to come to his house, and Christ goes. But just like urgent care in the emergency room, there isn't just one person that needs care. Other people come running in. And in today's day and age, the treating of this woman before the girl would get Christ sued as a doctor. Here's a woman who's already been sick for 12 years. I'm going to prioritize her over a girl that's on the deathbed? Any doctor today would get sued for that. It's called malpractice. You're treating a, you know, a common cold with someone who has a head injury. And Christ helps the woman. And while he does, Jairus' daughter dies. Look with me at verse 35. While he was still speaking, this is to the woman that had the issue of blood, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of Jesus. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I love your guys' laughing about that. If you're here this morning and you don't believe the Bible is historically reliable, there are things in these passages that say, hey, listen, these are eyewitness accounts. No one would include these details unless they were actually there and actually happened. Today, we have people that write fiction, and they have to work hard to include elements to make you feel that the story is alive. Back when the Bible was written, people didn't do that. So to say that he was asleep, you can see that Peter's going, yeah, he was asleep. And then you include things that you weren't going to include unless you were just retelling the story. Have you ever done that? You start retelling a story and you start adding details that you weren't even planning on sharing. And it was on a cushion. And then he raised her from the dead and he said, give her something to eat. That's because it actually happened. It doesn't move the story along at all. It's a good evidence for your faith. Go to Scott Hammond's class. He'll teach you more. No pressure, right? He's in the sound booth. There he is. So they call him. Notice what, they, what happens here. So he goes to the, to the girl's house, but along the way, he gets delayed, and someone from the house says, she's already dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What do they call him? Why trouble the teacher? What's the message in that? Yeah, this guy's a good teacher, but death marks the limit of his power. You know, sure, at his word, the waves cease. At his word, demons are expelled. At his word, blood stops. But can he really raise a dead girl? At his word, can that happen? I would argue that the test of Jairus' faith is not, can Jesus do it? Not even, would Jesus do it? 
I would argue the greatest test of Jairus' faith is waiting for Jesus to do it. The serpent says, don't bother. And then Christ responds, don't fear, only believe. What is he saying? Trust me. Be patient. There's no hurry. And here is how similar we are to Jairus, whether we've ever lost a child or not. God's timing tests our faith. Amen? God rarely operates on our schedule. It stretches our faith. Jairus might have had enough faith to see his daughter's fever cured, but now Christ says, I'm going to cost you a little bit more. Do you have enough faith that I can raise your daughter? What starts off small, I'm just going to touch the hem of his garment and disappear, now says, I'm going to cost you a little bit more. Come forth and say who you are. You see, faith ebbs and flows. And what you think it's going to cost you, Christ says, I'm going to up the ante. You see that through these stories? Do you have faith in Jesus that can wait? Can you wait like Jairus, even when it seems like he's delaying for no good reason? I understand how easy it is for me to ask that question, and yet how hard it is for you to live it out, right? If I was to sit down and hear each of your stories, I'm sure I could join you in saying, I can't understand why God isn't coming through. I, I, I don't know why he's delaying. I don't. I'm sure you're wondering the same thing. But let me give you a little bit of information that Jarius didn't know, and perhaps you've forgotten that you should treasure in your heart this morning. For Jesus, there's no difference between curing a fever and raising the dead. It's the same power. He just speaks a word. So is God delaying something in your life? Are you ready to give up on waiting for him? Are you impatient with him? There may be a crucial factor you don't know yet. And the answer is trust Jesus. Faith culminates in submitting to God's power and his plan. That's faith. Submitting to God's power and submitting to God's plan. How are we going to apply this? First thing here, faith comes alive in desperation. Application. Your faith is going to come alive when you are desperate. It is those that see their desperation that actually are open to seeing the power of Jesus. Now hear me on this. Those that don't see Jesus' power are no less desperate. They just don't see that they're desperate. You get me? Those that see that Christ can do this see their need. And those that don't see that Christ can do it typically don't see their need, but they are just as desperate. And that's why Christ told us in Mark chapter 1, you're going to hear this over and over, I came for the sick. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. They see their need. And so it doesn't matter in this story, all these contrasts, whether you're a male or a female, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you have privileged status or dishonored, whether you're rejected or accepted in society, when we are destitute, there is no barrier to receiving help from faith in Jesus. Faith comes alive in desperation. Second one, faith in Jesus transforms Faith brings the disciples back to safety, the demoniac back to sanity, a woman back to health, and a little girl back from the dead. He transforms. Faith in Jesus transforms people. We live in a culture that so desperately wants to be transformed, changed. 
But here's how the world does it. Let's just change the definition. Let's just rename things. Let's just redefine things. Let's just change someone's status. Jesus doesn't say, stop calling people unclean. Jesus doesn't say, stop calling people demon-possessed. Let's call them fill in the blank. You should just love them the way they are and leave them unchanged. He doesn't change the bleeding woman's status and say to the Jews, how prejudiced could you be? Bleeding women will no longer be labeled unclean anymore. You see how this connects to our culture? Our culture has just renamed the demons of the past but has not exercised them. But Christ has the power to change people. Christ transforms people. Not just renames them and their condition. He actually changes them. He didn't come to rename things. He came to change things. Our final point this morning is faith in Jesus that transforms is personal. It's personal. I had the privilege last night of going out to a a kind of a a get-together. And different people shared how they came to faith. And almost everyone said, I believe in God. Whether I grew up as a Methodist, whether I grew up in church, whether I grew up Catholic, I believe in God. This story, all of these stories say believe in God is not enough. Because guess what? Christ wants to move you from a powerful encounter to a personal encounter. Everyone in these stories want a miracle, and Christ says, I want a meeting. Meet me. It's with me. Right? And everyone last night around the campfire was saying... I knew God existed, but I didn't have a personal relationship with him. Brian prayed this morning that we would just appreciate the privilege of a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. So it sets us apart. They want a solution to their problem, and Jesus wants to confront their faith. It's a whole personal encounter with a personal God. This morning... We want to try to encourage you to move from an I-it relationship with God to an I-thou relationship with God. I have an I-it relationship with my computer. I have an I-it relationship with my power tools. I have an I-it relationship with my weights. I have an I-thou relationship with my wife. I have an I-thou relationship with my daughter, my son. And oftentimes we just see his power We say, I want God to do this in my life. And that's, I want a genie in a bottle. That's an I-it relationship. And God, through all of these stories, is calling people out to trust in his person. I want an I-thou relationship. That's why the very first commandment is what? Have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's a personal encounter. So this morning, faith believes that Jesus can save anyone and has the power over everything. And he is calling you to put your faith in a person. And he is asking you this morning, are you being called to a faith that asks? Great, we're going to have congregational prayer. Ask. Are you being called to a faith that runs? Then, then, Then run to Christ right now. Are you being called to a faith that touches? And perhaps are you being called to a faith that waits? And that's tough. We need the body to do that. So last night we're around this campfire and somebody says, this must be what heaven's like. You know, all of us sitting here sharing our faith story. 
voice. And I kind of liked it, what their person was saying. But you know what? We needed that last night. I needed my heart to be encouraged with all just the good stories. But there was no speaking the truth in love. There was no confrontation. There was no like, hey, you got this blind spot here. You know, there was no, hey, let's push on into greater Christ-likeness. I thought about saying, is this really, is this real Christian fellowship yet? Because all we've done is just enjoy each other. And that's an aspect, but there's also that part of sharpening each other. And so in your Sunday morning bulletin, there's a spot for you to be a part of Women Encouraging Women. Another discipleship opportunity to get in there and to appreciate the being together so many people at that campfire said, we didn't have this growing up. We've never been a part of a faith community before. But if all it was was just us sharing great stories about what we were doing and nobody ever said, hey, there's a log in your eye. <laughs> you want me to get that out? It's not quite there yet. There's also a spot to sign up if you're a junior high boy to be discipled with Bill Allen and, and, and Josh Newhook as they go through something. Because we need the, yeah, let's hang out and just enjoy what God's done. But we also need the, hey, you need to keep persevering and your shoes untied. You keep tripping. Let me help you. Let's double knot that thing. All right, let's go. And, uh, and that's what we're all about here at Faith Community Bible Church. I pray that you just see this Savior as someone you can run to, someone you can touch, someone you can ask for, and someone that is worth waiting on. Let's pray. Actually, Pat's supposed to do that. <laughs> that's good. All right, amen. <laughs>